the Exton Moss Experiment. Adventures in Wine and Space with Simon Exton and Ken Moss. Episode 16, ITC, Volume 1. Hello everyone, and welcome to the latest edition of the Exton Moss Experiment. I'm Ken Moss. I'm Simon Exton. And today's episode is going to focus on ITC programmes. And we're doing ITC because we have had our first request from a very old friend of mine by the name of Alex Wilcox. We've known each other from Doctor Who fandom for years and years and years. He and I are particularly keen on a pretty obscure um, one-off comedy show, I think from about the late 90s. That's a pastiche and a, a very gentle pastiche of the Champions and Department S, and it's something called The Preventers. So we're going to do that in this episode. But that's only half an hour and that's not going to fill a full episode. So we thought we'd preface it with episodes of the shows that it's pastiching. That's, that's The Champions, that's Department S. So we're going to watch an episode of each of those. And then to round off, got hold of the only episode of The Saint that was science fiction. So that'd be a little trick. Excellent. Well, this is stuff that I cut my teeth on um, when I was growing up with my nana. She loved all this. All those 60s and 70s programs, mm. action, adventure, all in this vein. I think the only one that I didn't, I knew she had, but I never actually watched was The Baron. Um, I'm not. Uh, there's a, a fantastical element to things like The Champions and Department mm. S, Randall and Hopkirk Deceased, that I absolutely love. The more straightforward um, secret agent espionage stuff, um, Baron, Man in a Suitcase, um, Danger Man, all of those kind of things I was less keen on and I know less well. Um, whereas there are episodes of The Champions that I've seen so many times I could pretty much quote them word for word. What were ITC? Um, it was run by a bloke called Monty Berman. And I'm not sure what his background was, but he was really good at buying up very cheap stock footage and building things around it. So he'd set things in Paris because he'd just got hold of a load of stock footage of the Eiffel Tower. And we saw that with the last Champions ones that we watched, where there was a... Very crowbarred in a holiday, wasn't it? Yeah, they, they crowbarred in a holiday, and the scene was all set with Mardi Gras carnival thing. Mm. Um, Although they never left the hotel room. They, they never left the hotel room, yeah, because... There were element, there were budget elements that he had, had to stick to. But he tried to give it a sort of deliberately exotic location and um, all of the ITC series from from this era. So Champions Department S, Jason King. Um, Man in a Suitcase, was that one of his? Man in a Suitcase. What, what's the, oh, what's the, Roger Moore and Tony Curtis. Persuaders. Persuaders. There was another one with Nairi Dawn Porter and the bloke from Space 1999, the name of which will come back to me. All of those had a deliberately sort of exotic worldwide setting. And sometimes you'd see the poor actors pretending to be in snow-capped Switzerland, obviously in the studio, sweating their bits off <laughs> in great big thick parkas. Um, in the same way as you'd have Debbie Watling talking about how she was yeah. supposed to pretend to be warm in on Margate Beach in January. So that, that's the rationale behind doing it, doing this ITC thing. And also because they're all series I really, really like. I know we've talked before about how The, the Champions is my earliest memory of watching television. And as a cracking theme tune. It's a real earworm of, of a theme tune, yes. Um, I'll have that in my head for, for days going forward. So we will watch and enjoy. Fantastic. But first... We need a gin review.
Yeah, so you've got something, another one. That's, yes, uh, another one courtesy of my lovely sister. And we've got a tasting uh, sample of Kojin Gin, which is a Japanese-inspired gin. And on the little leaflet thing, it says it's got juniper, burdock root, cherry wood, sanchio berries, mandarin peel, nori seaweed, and black sesame seeds. And it's inspired by Japanese food, and it's all about the balance of sweet, savoury, and spice. I think it's lovely. It's wonderful. This um, is, um, it's a really nice, mm. interesting mix of flavours. It's got a slightly odd but very nice aftertaste. It's... It, it is bizarre. The, the the feeling in my mouth afterwards is actually, it reminds me bizarrely of sparkle ice lollies from when I was a kid, which were mint ice lollies. And they used to leave a, a very particular tingle in mm. your mouth. I really like this gin. We have mixed it. It is with tonic. Yeah. I'm not really getting it. I'm getting a real woody taste from mm. it. It's more the, the sensation rather than the taste. Um yeah, I'm, I'm going to give that five burners. Yes. I really like I'm, that. I'm giving this a good solid five as well. So I think this is the first one that we've agreed on a five out of five. I think it is. Of. Yeah. Um, and sadly, we don't have any more. No, I, it, it's going to be hunted down, though, because that I... Yeah, th- this is... Kojin, K-O-J-I-N. Absolutely lovely and far, far too easy to drink. And our other regular feature is, of course, now the Black Archive. Black Archive. So, have you any thoughts of what you'd like to put into the Black Archive this time around? Uh, I'm going to pick another Doctor Who. What a surprise. Um, You're allowed. I'm allowed. I think um, I am finally going to bite the bullet and uh, bring Marco Polo back for the viewers. Because I know that you are not overly struck on it. It's uh, Marco Polo was a seven-part adventure from... William Hartnell's first season back in 1964 and it's a big sprawling historical adventure over seven episodes and it takes in a lot of locations and I've just always loved it. Uh, I, I would like to see any Doctor Who returned. Marco Polo wouldn't be particularly high on my list because I'm not as keen on the historicals as I am the um, science fiction although I do recognise that in a lot of cases the first couple of seasons historical stories were often of better quality than the science fiction stories. Yeah. The Aztecs is a far better piece of television than the Keys of Marinus. Uh, granted, I fully agree with that, um, yes. Even though I, I thoroughly enjoy the Keys of Marinus. Marco Polo is, I suspect, one of those uh, stories that is very visual. I mean, the, the telly snaps just look absolutely gorgeous. Mm. And if I were to see it, I might change my mind. That's that's true. I mean, um, it's, uh, Tomb of the Cybermen syndrome, where the thing actually turns up and everybody's a little bit disappointed with how it actually looks compared to how it looked in their heads. I wasn't. I It was in my um, top three wish list. Mm. Another one in my top three wish list was Web of Fear. So I'm doing pretty well on You're my... You're not doing too bad on my... Um, ultimate wish list. The the final one was Power of the Daleks and Philip Morris. If you're listening, you have Power of the Daleks. Please, please, please give it back. Um, it would be a nice. So that's that's top of my trout list by I, a long way. We have a, a lot of episodes. To be incredibly grateful to Philip Morris for. That was a slightly jokey comment. He said he doesn't have any Doctor Who. Um, I believe him on that. He said that he's looking for more Doctor Who. I absolutely believe him on that. And with his track record, good luck because. 
he's probably one of the uh, the, the best bets for, for finding whatever Lost Doctor Who there is out there. Well, the most successful person out there for finding Lost Doctor Who is actually Ian Levine. Because as soon as he says, I am certain that I know I'm missing episodes, <laughs> one turns up immediately. So I hope that this... Um, whatever spat that he's got with his beef with Philip Morris that he's got for whatever bizarre reason keep going Ian Levine you just keep saying that so what's coming out of it what's um, what are you putting into the archive I'm going to go for a BBC science fiction series from 1969 called Counter-Strike it was the last um, BBC um sci-fi show to be made in black and white there are I think four surviving episodes currently including one set in um, an Antarctic research station which I think is the first television appearance of David Jason being conspicuously Welsh I was talking in a different podcast about how I got involved with the telefantasy community and something called the Past Visions of the Future event at the National Film Theatre and one of the things that they showed was the first episode of Counter-Strike which is uh, an episode called King's Gambit it sets up the story of um, an alien who is living on the earth to protect us from attempts at invasion by a different set of aliens and it was very much in the vein of the um, American TV series The Invaders mm. Roy Thinnes but actually the ones that survive much more interesting plots the pity of it is that the, the pilot isn't actually terribly interesting it's pretty mundane it sets things in place uh, it introduces the lead character it introduces his sidekick who is a human doctor and introduces control which is the the people back on his home planet who give him his instructions and it does a lot of setting things in place subsequent episodes are much more interesting and I've, I've seen all the surviving episodes I wish I had copies of them and if there's anybody at the BBC listening or the uh, British Film Institute listening there are there's only four episodes it would be a marvellous, marvellous DVD release. So there are, I think, six episodes still missing, one of which was never transmitted. And I can't remember nice. the, exactly the reason why it wasn't transmitted. There was a, some sort of strike, I think. But it was it was fully made, ready for transmission. So will have only been watched by a handful of people and then was junked. Oh. So that probably makes it about one of the rarest missing episodes there is because so few people saw it in the mm. first place. Oh, that's a nice one. But I would love to have that back. I'd love to see it on DVD because I'd, I'd really like to see the episodes again. And I, I don't have copies of them. And frankly, anything with David Jason is worth watching. You have to know it's him. He's, he's young and skinny and looks like a little dot of a teenager. Um, it, it's really interesting to see. <laughs> the, um, the three subsequent episodes that survive are all interesting and entertaining. Um, and I would really love to see some more of it. So that, that's my take on the Black Archive. Fantastic. Um, we will crack away on with an episode of The Champions. Which one have we got today? We're going to watch The Shadow of the Panther. Run VT.
Right, so that was The Champion's Shadow of the Panther. I, I really like that episode. It's a very entertaining one. Um, it's set on high tea, and the only way that you know that is that they tell you at the beginning, and there's some establishing stock footage. And apart from a scene in Tremaine's office, the entire thing is set in a hotel, which basically could be anywhere. Although there are pot plants and garlands and Hawaiian shirts and bongo drums and pretty much anything to say, we're foreign here, you know. <laughs> that is very true. And um, the plot is basically, uh, there's a, a nemesis scientist who's found dead in the hotel and his hair's turned white and he's died of fright. So Sharon goes over to investigate and discovers that there are a lot of dignitaries in the hotel who are being brainwashed. She gets in touch with Tremaine and says, Hello, I'm in a little bit of bother. <laughs> Please send help. So Craig and Richard tip up and find that Sharon herself has been brainwashed. So they bumble around being not subtle in the slightest. Not at all, no. um, And try and make contact with her and she tells them to bugger off several times. I'm getting in my way. I'm doing perfectly well without you. Yeah. So, so they, they go and find her in her room where she basically tells them, I'm doing fine, I'm undercover, I'm, I'm not under control. Will you go away and stop interfering? <laughs> you, man, uh, you get in the way. It turns out that she's pretending to be brainwashed so she can uh, find out what what's happening with the, um, the organisation. There's a journalist played by Donald Sutherland who turns out to be behind it all. They're uh, brainwashing all these international dignitaries to go and assassinate other international dignitaries. And Sharon kind of has it all under control until Craig and Richard bubble along and blow everything out of the water. Mm. Um, Which I seem to remember was largely the plot of the last one of these we watched that... She's quite capable of doing all this. Um, they sort of turn up at the end and have a fight. That's basically their role in the two that I've seen so far. I haven't seen these for years. Yeah. Now, they, they, the last one that we saw, which was the night people, she gets kidnapped and they, they come along and rescue her because, you know, remember, there's the, the hotel receptionist who's pretending to be Oh, her. yes, yeah. But no, th- this one, she's doing absolutely fine. They come along and blow her cover out of the water. She, she stays undercover until all of the brainwashed dignitaries are sent to kill Craig and Richard and she has to blow her cover to, to rescue them. And she gets captured by Donald Sutherland, turns the tables on him, destroys all the equipment just as Craig and Richard are about to get killed by, uh, by people who've tracked her down. So basically they don't help at all. This, this is a, a very Sharon-centric episode. Mm. And had they not come bumbling in, she would have got names and dates and all of the information behind the, the plan rather than just wrecking it and, and not really finding out who was behind it, what was going on. So all in all, a very entertaining episode. It's one of my favourite from the series. I, I watch it quite often. What did you think? Well, I love all this ITC stuff. It's uh, action, adventure and meant to, you know, a reasonably high quality. It was only as the end credits were rolling, I realised... This was made in 1967. Mm -hmm. It's, as with a lot of stuff of this ilk, it's been very well archived. Yes. And very well produced for all that we've had a a sideways dig at it for stock footage not being entirely consistent. The name of the hotel changes at least once to fit the stock footage. But it's a Monty Berman. You know that that's going to happen when you go into it. Yes. But no, I love all that. I, I think... They've, they've gone to every effort to make it look a little bit exotic. It is of its time, because that means oh, yeah, anybody it. either anybody foreign with a slightly darker skin, you'll, you'll do as a foreign walla, what? And Craig, when they're on the plane, is very clearly staring down the uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, hostess's top. Everybody within five seconds of meeting Sharon 
tries it on with her uh, or makes some comment. And they're all incredibly creepy about it. They, they are. Uh, and the the technical bloke who's behind the uh, the brainwashing is going about. Oh, we'll 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 put spy cameras put a in over television in there. Mind a feed there, snarf, snarf. And great big comedy winks and things. Yeah, they, there there are some bits of it that have dated a little from bit. A, from a modern perspective, are a little bit creepy. But you can't call this a sexist episode because basically it's. It's Sharon. It's the woman who has everything under control. The other two fellas come in and wreck it all. And then she saves the day when they're about to get killed. Oh, in such a measured way, though. I mean, Alexandra Bastido, never a hair out of place. Yeah, She is the most immaculate woman I've ever seen on screen. It's like she's lacquered on. No, she never rushes, never screams or gets... She barely raises an eyebrow for fear of wrinkling that immaculate face. There's, there's, it's just one expression all the time. Surprise, alarm, and I think the hands in front of the face and sort of the hands do the acting rather than their expressions. Bear in mind that in this episode she spends most of it pretending to be hypnotised, so I think that's possibly slightly harsh. The, the last episode was much the same. She didn't, she didn't exactly get hot under the collar. Yeah, her BPM didn't raise by more than three, in, even in the most dire peril. But I do, no, I do like it. Um, very easy to watch. Um, but as with all action and adventure programmes of this period, don't examine it too closely. We're, we're drilling down fairly deep on this, and it's still standing the test of time. Yes. And every time I see something like this, so 67 would be around um, Web of Fear era? Slightly before. Oh, 67s. Oh, no, 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 uh, based under siege. Yeah, it would be. Yeah. yeah. And think about how good Web of Fear would be or Tomb of the Cybermen would be in colour. There's two things like I've that. always said about Doctor Who. I wish they'd all been done on colour and I wish they'd all been done on film. You could have glossed over a lot of the financial woes if they'd done that. Film has a different look and feel about it. Shakespeare Heaven Space. Yeah. For example. Now, a lot of that was on location, which helps. But bear in mind, last time we watched Spearhead from Space, it was on Blu-ray. That was years ago now. That's probably about six, seven years ago since yeah. we saw that. But we, we so really it must... it's time to do it again. It is. Right. But what's next on the list? Next on the list is Department S, which is another ITC, um, mid to late 60s, two fellas and a girl, slightly fantastical spy drama. They're, they don't have any special powers in, in Department S. They're, they're an agency that has been set up to investigate things that are too baffling for other international agencies. So Interpol goes, ooh, a bit stumped on this. We'll get Department S in. Well, let's take a look at that. What's this episode called? I can't remember.
that was Department S. One of our aircraft is empty. Yes, and um, really quite good fun. I like okay. that more than the champions. There was just something that held together very nicely about that. The plot of the episode that we've just watched is that Department S are called in to investigate a plane that's landed at Heathrow Airport without any passengers or crew on board and came in on autopilot when people go go in and have a look and see why nobody's come out of the plane. Everybody's there, no sign of a struggle, all, the, um, all their luggage is on board and the plane came in on time. They investigate a bit further and find that, find out couple of things. Firstly, there is a um, multimillionaire industrialist who was travelling incognito on the plane. And secondly, there was a, um, a strong tailwind, which would meant that the plane should have arrived early. So I had time to make a quick stop somewhere and offload all the passengers. And they found out that what happened is that the um, industrialist had actually died on the flight. The plane makes a detour at his plant in Ireland. Passengers volunteer to leave uh, and because they're going to be paid compensation to sit there for a few days. And they talked to the accountant who works for the, the firm, said that they just needed a few days before making the announcement of the death, before they'd get a, a, a major loan. The pilot of the plane, in the meantime, has tried to escape and been murdered, and they, uh, they found his body at Heathrow Airport. And when the team confront the managing director's assistant. He makes it clear that he has no intention of paying any of these people and he's just going to um, chuck all their bodies out of another plane going over the Atlantic. So they, end, they all end up in this plane over the Atlantic. Knockout gas is being, being pushed through it. Knocks everybody out apart from um, Stuart Sullivan, who's the, uh, the lead policeman in the, or the lead investigator in the department. He overcomes everybody. The, the guy behind it falls out of the open door of the plane that he was aiming to, to throw the, the unconscious passion, passengers out of. They land, land the plane on autopilot. Happy days, everything's sorted. <laughs> and Jason King is unbelievably smug throughout. He is. He's like Devon Miles on crack. I did enjoy it. It's just the, the dynamic between the three. She is a little bit flimsy, though. She's no Sharon McCready. No. Um, in terms of character... She's just there for a bit of background colour, really. She didn't do a lot in that. I don't know whether that's typical of, of the rest of the episodes. Um, she's she's certainly not as dynamic as Sharon. She She's there to programme the computer, and the computer actually has a lot more to do in this episode than it does in most. Hmm. Uh, and it, it's the same... It's basically a repeat of the same formula that they'd had with the champions in that you've got your square-jawed American action hero who's the, um, the lead policeman. You've got your... Suave... So, yeah, Pimp. Suave, suave and a bit more English. It's a second fella. And the woman's actually the brains of the outfit. And that was true for the champions. It, it's true. For, it, it's kind of true for this in that um, Annabelle Hurst is very logical and methodical and insists on proper police procedure, conclusions being drawn from proof. And she's up against Jason King, who just comes out with all these wild theories which, which happened to be true. <laughs> Just, often true, yeah. um, often proved to be not far from the truth. And Jason King was a wildly successful character from this, to the point where he got his own spin-off show. Now, this which, is something I've never seen. I thought I'd seen Department S. I, I don't remember ever seeing this, to be honest. It was less uh, less commonly repeated than, um, than The Champions. Um, what was the premise of Jason King, the series? Um, him... Wandering around the world, writing novels and getting into trouble. It does, To my mind, it doesn't work as well as this does because it doesn't have that 
weird stuff turning up because that's what they do. Yeah. Now, I always think it's a bit of a mistake when they choose one character from an ensemble piece and then spin it off. It never really 100% works. Frasier. With that exception. I do also... Uh, there's, there's two things about this, which we both commented on halfway through. Everybody smokes in it. It's a wonder any of the cast survived beyond the 60s. This is 1969, this episode, I think. Does, she, does Annabelle Hurst smoke? I know everybody else was. I can't remember seeing her smoke. Oh, that's a good point. Mm. Uh, but the other thing is, their boss is, uh, again, a black actor. Very strong, very commanding performance mm. when he, he turns in and just he's in the middle of an opera and uh, he gets summoned out to discuss this case. Yeah, he, he's not in it very much, but, but Tremaine was never in episodes very much. No. Sir Curtis, I think, gets a little bit more involved in some of the cases than Tremaine did. Tremaine was always there in the office and told them to go off and do stuff and then they had a little recap afterwards. Sir Curtis will turn up to meet them at certain points and bring them sort of confidential files and things. So he's, he's a little bit more hands-on mm. than Tremaine was. And also he doesn't seem to have an office. They meet in the back, back of cars and at the ballet or wherever. The other thing... And it's a bit unfair, but the plane door opens mid-flight and they just have a bit of a tussle in the... Nobody gets sucked out. There's no um, noticeable drop in pressure or any any sc- uh, struggle to stay on board the plane. The only reason he falls out is because he gets pushed out, basically. Yeah. And, but to be fair, the, the only way that they'd be able to get around that would be to have a whacking great wind machine in there. And if you look at it... It's they, quite drafty. They do have a wind machine. Mm. Um so they, they've made an, eff, an effort towards it, and there's hair rustling about and everything. It's just that um, the curtains stay absolutely still, and <laughs> people, people's coats that are up on the, uh, the shelves that you'd expect to fly off. But that it's a bit unfair. It's a nice to make, that, to make that in any way realistic would be a big mm. special effects nightmare. And as we've already established, Monty Berman was very, very good at reusing things um, and working setting scene with stock footage which is what he's done with this in this one there was a little bit of outside broadcast filming when they go to the hangar oh yes there yeah. was um, oh where, day for night filming whereas the oh. whereas when we went to the champ, when we saw the champions episode absolutely everything was, um, was stock studio. footage and studio yeah yeah, yeah on that and note and that's not that the champions didn't do location filming it's just they didn't do it every single episode and uh, department heads don't do it every single episode Again, budgetary time and requirements and, and everything else that goes into the making of a programme for decades, really. But I hate day for night filming. I really... It never convinces, ever. And there was no good reason for that to be day for night filming. No, not at all. Um, because he was going to talk to people at work. It would have worked every bit as well if he'd been talking to them in the daylight. And actually, it just looked as though he turned up somewhere and it was really overcast. Mm. But they're minor niggles. But, yeah, uh, yeah, they are. But I, um, I can't... Uh, the, no, as a, as a series, I would love to see more of those. I, I really enjoy Department S. They do some wonderful, weird crime stuff like that. It's more policey than The Champion. Champion's very is very secret agent. Mm-hmm. And you were saying about halfway through, uh, well, at least they're actually doing some proper police investigation. And, and they were. Mm. It, it's more of um, an indication that the, the Champion's weren't police people and they, they didn't investigate in that way hmm. it was much more the undercover James Bond fly by the seat of your pants thing whereas the, this is a more structured 
type of investigation. But they're, they're both great fun. A final mention must go to the quality of the prints because they've done a really, really nice job. Yeah, we're watching this from the um, the remastered Blu-rays and they look beautiful. Little bit of mist sinking in one scene with the audio. Oh, yeah, there was. Just one scene. It was, it was quite badly out. Yeah, and then I, corrects itself immediately in the next scene. So I'm not quite sure how that's happened. Uh, and I've not noticed it, noticed that on any of the other episodes that I've seen from this box set. But no, hats off to A, I mean, it'll have to have been archived quite well in order for the prints to, to clean up this well. But for something that's 50 years old, they will have had to do something with it. Yeah. And it's beautiful. Yeah. And uh, ITC as a company definitely had the eye on the international market when they were making these things. So they did at least 26 episodes so it could go into American syndication. Mm. And it was good quality camera work, really clean and crisp, all in colour. And done on film, Mm. which does make a difference. And means that we can now get Blu-rays. Moving swiftly on, what have we got next? The next thing we have is kind of the whole reason behind doing this ITC thing in that there was a pastiche called The Preventers ah, yes. with Morwenna Banks sometime in the, the late 90s I can't remember exactly when and I haven't looked it up and that's what we're going to watch next you can tell me all about it after the episode I'm going to come into this cold not knowing anything about it and just enjoy it for what it is Ron VT television that's the key Someone somewhere is using television to brainwash the population of this country. Look around you. Everything has reverted to exactly how it was in the 1960s. 60s clothes, 60s cars, 60s music. We're not sure how this is being done, or why, or where, or by whom. All we know is it must be prevented. Only we have remained unaffected. And we have a plan. Take three ordinary citizens create an elite team of international troubleshooters. The Preventers. Well, that was The Preventers. Pilot episode. Pilot episode for a a series that unfortunately didn't get made, which is a terrible shame. Oh, is that the only one? It's the only one. Oh, that is a shame. That was really good. It's a a very affectionate pastiche of the, basically of the champions. Yes. Um, There there are other references in there, but basically they're, they're sending up the champions and they have William Gaunt playing the Tremaine type character. It's a comedy. It's a very funny comedy. It's about three troubleshooter champion type type characters. Um, the tall, good-looking, stupid one, the pretty blonde girl, and the other one. The other one. <laughs> which is exactly how they describe him. There, there's an awful lot of the, the ITC tropes that you see. So um, back, back projection, stock footage. Um, they've, they've got their, the typeface for the... Um, for the captions, absolutely spot yeah, on. Yeah. They have um, Simon Williams as the the guest star baddie, as Lord Timothy Beaversnatch. Um, 
I, I really liked it. I don't think you need to be intimately familiar with any of those series that it's taken off to appreciate it. The no, that's very there. true. I think it, you'll it, get it, the most out of it if you do. If you and do. there are some really nice little nods to other programs. So there's there's a talk about Deadly Assassins. Yeah. Um, there's a thing about reversing the polarity. I wonder what program they could be referring to there. Have a, have a think. So it's clearly been written by people who are who are fans both of the ITC stuff and of genre stuff in general. I I believe from what I've read, Maureen Banks was the the big driving force behind it, but it was actually written by all three of the leads. I think it was really well done. Yeah. That's uh, of the stuff that they did make uh, in the nineties. That's something I actually would have actively sat down to watch because yeah. I was wondering before we we watched this how I'd managed to miss it. It's exactly my sort of thing. It's because it was a one-off pilot and, um, and unfortunately didn't get it. So I don't actually know whether they were aiming for it to go to a series. I know it says to be continued mm. at the end, but it may just always have been intended as a one-off. Possibly, but it is a, a terrible waste of an idea. There have been other secret agent parodies not done as well, I have to say. And it, that wasn't just a secret agent No, that was, It was very clearly a... Champions um, an ITC mm. champions parody, and for that to come thirty odd years past the after the original, mm. and get William Gaunt in it, there was, um, it was a good cast. I thought as well. There was uh, well, we had Simon Williams in there, mm. William Gaunt. But the Parentis itself is now more than twenty years old. Yeah, sometimes 96. it's very very easy to forget that. Yeah, a nice little bit of a uh, fluff, really. Um, uh, who is it that suggested this again? Your friend Alex. Well, thank you, Alex, because that was uh, a nice half-hour diversion. I enjoyed that a lot. Unfortunately, I'm not aware that it's available on any commercial media. I would, I would love it to be. I recorded it at the time, so the the file that I've got is taken from the the off-air recording mm. that I did. It's one of those things that kind of begs for a a, a proper cleaned-up release. Mm. And sadly, it's probably one of those things that is unlikely to get it. I doubt it. Yes, is a. Uh, 24 minutes of, of ITV still, unfortunately. What a shame. And unless it's tacked on as an extra mm. to some other Maureen Banks things. Anyway, I'm glad you enjoyed that. I did, very much. So, yeah, well, what a shame. But what is last in the can for today? Last in the um, on the list for today is the only science fiction episode of The Saints, the Roger Moore adaptation of the Leslie Chatteris books from the 1960s. It's called The House on Dragon Rock. I don't think The Saint needs much of an introduction in the International Man of Mystery, etc., etc. And I think we just crack on and give it a watch. <laughs> Well, that was uh, The Saint. Yes, the episode was The House on Dragon Rock. It is the only episode from the whole run of The Saint that was a science fiction episode. And the whole concept of it is that um, Simon Templer, or The Saint, goes to visit a friend in a remote Welsh village because the friend has noticed odd things happening. There have been a number of animals killed um, and sort of ripped apart. There's been odd disappearances. 
And when he arrives, the whole place seems deserted because they're out looking for a um, local shepherd who's gone missing. And as was pretty much compulsory for anything Welsh <laughs> in the 60s, Telford Thomas is there. He's the missing shepherd. They find him. He's in such a shocked state that he can't tell it um, tell anybody who's attacked him other than write down a big and then doesn't manage to finish the sentence. So we know we're looking for something larger than life because he knows the local GP, um, Simon Templer, is able to ingratiate himself with the with the locals. Uh, and after an initial bit of fairly blatant hostility, mm. they they accept him and, help, uh, and he helps out with the search parties and everything. Next arrival is the only woman that we see in the village. Yes. Um, played by Annette Andre, who the, the local... And she's been concerned about, um, oh, in the, uh, the shepherd who's gone missing. So she comes along to find out how he's doing, and they're just very, very unpleasant to her and refuse to tell her what's going on and kick her out of the pub. And Simon Templer says that Owen's okay and strikes up conversation with it. Turns out that her uncle is a scientist who's taken over the local manor house. And as the uh, story develops, you realise that he's actually quite a lot of a loon and he's been growing a giant ant, which has been escaping every so often and killing things. Um, And on its most recent escapade, it's laid a load of eggs. Presumably they're going to turn into the next colony of giant ants and take over the world. His assistant starts running scared of this, tries to kill the ant and gets murdered by the scientist. And then Simon Templer turns up, initially tries to kill the ant until he realises that there are eggs around which need to be found. So he lets the ant go to follow it. He and um, Annette Andre follow it into the, the tunnels with a load of kerosene to set fire to the the eggs, and her uncle follows them in. He gets killed by the ant. They found, find the ant. They um, set fire to the eggs, and they bring the ceiling of the cave down on top of the ant, killing it. Annette Andre does every cliche of damsel in distress in the 60s. She screams, she twists her ankle, she faints and has to be carried out. She doesn't even help carry the kerosene. She's really not really... She's not there for anything other than decoration, yeah. quite clearly. And once they get out of the cave, the episode just ends. There's no recap or anything. Yeah, it's... That was very odd. Now, uh, it's been a long time since I've seen any Saint episodes. It, and that, that one's not typical. It's not typical, no. But And it's it's a bit of an oddity, really. Um, the, the whole Saint run, having read the, the original Saint novels by Leslie Charteris, it was never anything like the books. But that... Oh, right, okay. So, I mean, he was always... In the books, he was just a, a playboy with living in a London house, with mm. surrounded by the chaps, and he was uh, he was actually quite a fey character. These were written in the I think it was either twenties or thirties. He started writing the, the Saint novels. Yeah, it was about the same time as Maigret. That's it? right. Yeah, and the Paul Temple stuff. Well, he always comes across as a bit uh, sort of bisexual in the books. It was never explicit. It's just his his mannerisms, his behaviour, and the way he talks. Um, but he's not any sort of spy or secret agent. He just gets hired as this sort of freelance. And you can't imagine Sir Roger playing a chap like that. Not, not in the slightest. Well, actually, unless you've seen Boat Trip, in which Casey plays a chap exactly like that and does an extremely good job of it, um, with tongue massively in cheek and uh, really puts in a blinding performance. Well, this is all, the same TV series has always struck me as. James Bond by the back door. You've appropriated a character. Into- <laughs> Matron. Oh, God, here we go. And it's- <laughs> <laughs> so they've appropriated this literary character because they couldn't get their hands on James Bond. Oh, I'm going to shut up now. 
And what do you know? They actually get James Bond before his time. And uh, from what I remember of The Saint, a lot of it is better than some of the James Bond he, put, he, he did. And James Bond is another character that where they, the screen version is... Nothing like Nothing the whatsoever mm. like the books. Uh, because the books are really quite dark. Oh, yeah, they places. are. Yes, they are. To be honest, don't get me wrong. Christmas Day, James Bond film, it's what you want. It's traditional. They're, and they're fun. The books are really good. They are. I love them. Um, getting off track a little bit, but uh, the last third of Casino Royale, the film with Daniel Craig, is verbatim the book, mm. uh, which I was delighted to see on screen. I thought that the, a book that old, they couldn't possibly just adapt, but they did. Getting back to The Saint, you've pretty much listed a lot of the things that I was going to say. There's some fairly ropey Welsh accents in this. The um, little girl clearly isn't Welsh, but the, her dad in this is played by a Welshman and he sounds English. And then you've then you've got the anti-fact. Uh, the the anti-fact wasn't good. Um, it was a a ropey model, and there's a really bad CSO bit yeah. behind a door. Awful. To be fair, this is very early days of CSO, and this is before even the CSO in the Silurians. Mm. So, and that that's not good. So, I think you have to be a little forgiving in terms of age for for that one. If they were going to go the the CSO route then why didn't they just do the whole lot with footage of ants? Real ants, yeah. No, I, I'm not... That one I wasn't a fan of, I'm afraid. Uh, I mean, the Saint in general, I, I can't ever say that I was I was genuinely um, a, a fan of the Saint TV series. So, I mean, it's not bad. It's just not really my cup of tea, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah, and we sort of pop, pop this in as a little bit of an ITC oddity mm, yeah. to, to round off our... Look at ITC, but the, the the main focus of this episode was always going to be the nineteen sixties two blokes and a girl team, mm. and uh, as a way of leading up to the the wonder that is the Preventers. Yeah, yeah, I did enjoy the Preventers. I'm really still torn between which I prefer, Champions of Department S. I I'm I'm firmly with the with the Champions. champions. I thought you might be the bloody thing. For for the for these episodes that I've I've watched that we've watched today, I'd I'd say I'm sort of no, I'm actually still with the champions to be to be completely honest. The champions for me has that whole nostalgia factor which Department S didn't really have. Yeah. I don't remember seeing that before I was reasonably knowledgeable about telefantasy and certainly seeing it as a um as an adult, whereas the champions is a thing from my childhood. Mm. And it's my first TV memory. Later on, I remember watching it with my grandmother and none of that Department S has. Some of the Department S stories are fantastic and really well worth seeing. But some of the Champion stories are fantastic and really well worth seeing. The Shadow of the Panther that we saw today, I really enjoy. I'd like to revisit both of those series, though. Yes. Uh, in a future podcast, must do more of those. Well, we we said that with the Champions last time we did it and we've done it. Yeah, some things, are, some things are worth coming back to, and some things aren't. But those it's only the second are. one that we've done two episodes of, isn't it? It is, yeah. Because we did Space 1999. Mm-hmm. With that... I think we can sign off. We can. Um, I hope this has inspired somebody, uh, some of you to have a little look at some of these ITC series. There are some absolute gems in there. And to be fair, they're worth, they are worth seeing as examples of television of the time, and they're all really nicely cleaned and, and well-presented. They're not ropey. So, uh, for all that we've just picked apart the same for its CSO, production-wise... It, it's it's nice. on screen for about three seconds. It is. Yeah. Um, and they do their absolute level best to show as little of the, mo- uh, of the model mm, work of the ant as possible. And there's an awful lot of 
people uh, immediately in front of in front of the camera reacting to antennae, mm-hmm. which works quite nicely. Less is more. Yeah, absolutely. And when and when you first see it, it's shrouded in fog. So they've obviously recognised it's not the greatest special effect, but it's what they've got to work with, mm-hmm. and they do it as little as possible. I think there's what two scenes where you actually two maybe three scenes where you, you see the actual ant. Yeah. And considering considering that it's the episode's major protagonist, then yeah. they they've obviously sort of limited exposure as much as possible and done pretty good a pretty good job of it. Yeah. But all in a, well, an enjoyable morning's work anyway. Yes. Work in commerce. Absolutely. So thank you very much for listening everyone. We'll be back in a fortnight with our next episode. Enjoy. The Exton Moss Experiment featured Simon Exton and Ken Moss, and the title music was performed by the BBC Symphony Orchestra. All featured television soundtracks are the property of their respective producers, and no infringement of copyright is intended. The programme was recorded in Rushton, Lancashire, and produced by Maverick Productions. For more information, please visit our website at extonmossexperiment.blogspot.com or find us on Facebook.